Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. Had a unique experience when I walked out of the interview with this week's guest on Big Questions, best-selling author Simon Sinek. You might know him by his book, Starts With Why, or the book, Leaders Eat Last, or the TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. That got 42 million views. In a few months, he's got a new book coming out called The Infinite Game. Simon and I were walking out of our meeting room at WeWork when I asked a woman who was in the kitchen area if she'd mind taking a photo of the two of us. Her face turned to disbelief when she saw Simon. She nodded, took my camera, and snapped a couple of pictures of us. Then, very shyly, she asked if she could get in a photo with Simon. Sure, he said. I snapped it, and she began to cry. She was trying to hold back the tears, but she couldn't. Her expression was bursting with gratitude for whatever Simon's work had brought her. It almost seemed like it was too much for her, because she quickly backed away. I had to get moving to another meeting, so unless I see her again, I'll never know what it was about Simon's work that touched her so much. But there's definitely something magical about this guy. For decades, I've been making a living as a writer. Now, as I continue to speak and move into storytelling consulting, I'm in a new zone. I'm in business. By the end of my conversation with Simon, it felt like all the nuts had been massaged out of my body and I was ready to expand. I hope you'll have the same feeling of appreciation for Simon and that you'll make a note to join me in pre-ordering The Infinite Game. You'll understand why as soon as the conversation gets going. But before it does, I want to thank my sponsors for bringing Simon to you. That means Sportique for the softest hoodies and tees that you can imagine. In fact, the level of comfort I felt after my conversation with Simon is very much what I feel like when I put on Sportique threads. It's that zone where comfort overlaps with confidence. That's why I record these intros in my Sportique hoodie and sweatpants. Go to Sportique.com and find out what I'm talking about. And if you use the offer code CAL, you're going to get a 20% discount. As soon as you put these threads on, I'm telling you, you're going to be smiling. I also want to thank WeWork. WeWork makes my life so much more relaxed and efficient. Whenever I need office space, I simply go to the WeWork app and Order it up with my global access pass. The beauty of WeWork is you get just the space you need. You're looking for a table to sit at and get some community? They got it. If you need a private space to do a podcast, got that too. If you're employing many people, they've got larger spaces for you. They've got great conference rooms and theater space. I'm telling you, you're going to be very happy using the offer code www.we. Dot co slash cal because you're going to get 20% off wearing my sportiques, podcasting at WeWork, getting to spend time with Simon. Life feels good. Let's get straight to Simon. You got me very curious, <laughs> very curious, and you'll find out why. 
just the title of your next book mm. has really sparked my curiosity. The Infinite Game. The Infinite Game. Mm. And ultimately, my question is going to be, have I been playing an infinite game or have I been playing a lot of finite games all along the way? Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk it out. Yeah. Uh, but let's start with where did that title come from? So we are all unwitting players in these things called infinite games, uh, games that don't have finish lines, right? Um, there's no such thing as winning marriage. Uh, there's no, you can get a promotion, but you won't, there's no such thing as winning in your career. Like you can't win a, you can't win your career, you know? Um, you can have wins in business, but there's no winner in business. There's no winning business. There's no finish line in business. And that's interesting because so many people in business associate with sports. Yeah, exactly. Where right. there's... But sports have a beginning, middle and end, right? They're right. So the original concept it's game theory stuff, but the, the, I was introduced to the concept by a guy by the name of James Carsey. He wrote a book in 1986 called Finite and Infinite Games, where he sort of goes through these definitions of what finite games and infinite games are. And it sort of blew my mind because I realized, oh my goodness, we are all these, we're all playing in these infinite games all around us, but we're unaware of it, which means uh, this is a problem, right? So if you listen to the language of too many leaders, they talk about being number one, being the best, beating their competition. Donald Trump. Right? Yeah. You, 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 you hear all these people talking. But the problem is there's no such thing as winning business. There's no such thing as winning global politics. It doesn't exist. Um, um, which means if we play with a finite mindset in the infinite game, there's a few very predictable things that happen, which is decline in trust, decline in cooperation, and decline in innovation. And so what I set out to write, which is if we're leading with a finite mindset in the infinite game, then we should probably learn how to lead with an infinite mindset in the infinite game. And that's what I wrote. Now, it immediately makes me think of a company like Sears, mm. which back in, I guess, the 50s and the 60s, they used to send out this big fat catalog that people used to be waiting for. Mm. It was sort of like what Amazon has. I remember it. You remember it? Yes. Okay, me I mean, too. Anybody who was alive before the internet remembers it. Yeah, and if it sounds to me like they were not playing the infinite game. Well, they probably were in the early days. What very often happens um, is a finite-minded leader will come into one of these infinite-minded companies and then things start to go awry. <laughs> but it really, you know, adjusting one's own mindset to an infinite mindset is really kind of um, cathartic. It releases us from this uh, false belief that we, we have to win in every situation. In the infinite game, there's no such thing as winning. There's ahead and there's behind, but, but there's no winning. And even though, you know, you think about your career, you know, at the end of your career, like there's no ranking that at the end you'll get a medal. It's your own definition of whether you succeeded or not, whether your, your career was, was worth it and your effort was worth it and your life was worth living. Um, and so if, you, if we can let go of this false assumption that everything we do, we have to win at 
and by the way, many of those metrics are arbitrary. Like we pick our own metrics and we pick our own, we pick our own timeframes. Take any of my books. I can compare my book to any other author I want and I can decide if I'm the winner or they're the, or they're the winner. I can pick any time frame that I want. I can pick book sales. I can pick revenues. I can pick how many foreign licensing deals. I get to pick all the, all the details. And by the way, it's the same from companies. Companies pick, you know, you know, number one, blah, 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 based on how many offices you have around the world, based on your revenues, based on revenues one year, five years, 50 years, 100 years. Like, Everybody's a winner. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's so funny to me. It's so funny to me, it, especially when I like look at advertising, like, and, I, and I see all these things like, number one, you know, we're the best. And I always think to myself, I love looking at the fine print. You know, some of them are really funny, like airlines in particular, like best airline, blah, blah, blah. And you look at the, you look at the fine print, it says, you know, voted by our customers between, you know, and this is no joke, sometimes like an eight month period between January and August of 2016. You know, they, they, they can substantiate their claim, but they get to pick the substantiation. Wow. And generally you don't even see the small print. No, but it's really fun to read it. You know, I saw the other day a story about uh, Pew, which does these research uh, for politics. And they were saying that it's, almost impossible for them to do their research by phone anymore because they're only getting, say, 6% of people to respond, which means that they really don't know who's responding. And, and, it's, and it's people who still have a home phone. So there's an age bias. Yeah, so... <laughs> it's like, we, we, uh, we uh, survey people, a thousand people, 65 and older, <laughs> <laughs> to find out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you could probably, if you did the research, figure out where they lived and because they're all a certain right. group. And it made me wonder about wh what you're saying. How can you trust anything in this world where we're being told we're number one, we're the best, but it's Look, all arbitrary. It's arbitrary and relative, right? Um, and it's... and. Uh, um, and I think one of the problems of believing that you're the best in an infinite game is that it um, exposes your weaknesses because it, it's, it's hubris, right? It's hubris to say you're the best when there's, n when there's no finish line, like you haven't won. A sporting event is different. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Right. And we've agreed to the rules, we've agreed to the metrics, and we've agreed who will be the winner at the end. Like when a team loses, unless somebody broke the rules, they don't say, uh-uh, we won, uh-uh. Like, because we all agreed to the rules before we started playing, right? Um, and, and you don't get to say, well, if we keep playing, I bet we can come back. It's like, no, we agreed whoever was ahead at the end of the time frame will be the winner. Like we've agreed to that. Where in the infinite game, no such agreements were made. And so to declare oneself a winner, you may be ahead in the rankings, but there is no such thing as winning. And so this is the whole point of this book, which wow. is when we lead with, an in, with a finite mindset in the infinite game, there's predictable things that happen, as I said, decline in trust, decline in cooperation, decline in innovation are, are the big three. But when we learn to lead with an infinite mindset in the infinite game, what we see is, um, greater trust, greater cooperation, greater innovation, and the companies that we very often admire and love, the ones who really sort of 
blaze a path into the future, what you tend to find more often than not is they're led by an infinite-minded leader. Are there a lot of those companies? I'm almost struck by the way that maybe this is a stereotype. I don't know, but I, I always am led to believe that Chinese leadership is based on thinking way down the road, 50, 60. 50, 60, forget that, thousand. Thousand years. Thousand years. Yeah, the Chinese have a thousand year plan. Um, you know, Eastern, Eastern uh, philosophies tend to be more infinite. The West tends to be more finite. And America is probably the most finite of them all. Um, not, this is not a new thing. We've been like that for forever. Um, Why are <laughs> Americans like that? Uh, it's, it's a cultural thing. You know, we're entrepreneurial. Um, we're, we, we, we like a competition. Uh, it's not unique to us. You know, every culture has its own thing. Um, you know, Germans are known for their engineering and they're not known for their sense of humor. You know, Italians right. are known for their love of life. They're not exactly known for their engineering. You know, it's like, right. yes, Italian yeah. things are beautiful. Italian cars are amazing. They, you know, they break. You know, <laughs> German cars don't break, but they're, they have less passion. You know, and then like every, every culture... You know, the British have the stiff, stiff upper lip, you know, which is, you know, every culture has its thing, um, which is why people either belong there or they don't and feel connected to that culture or not. I mean, it's not, that's not a new idea. Do Americans need to be thinking differently then? Because this, this is a culture obsessed with winning. Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't always like, it wasn't always this exaggerated. It got really bad after the 1970s. People, you know, our, our fathers or grandfathers used to work for a company for their entire careers and at the end they'd get the gold watch. I don't even think anybody, I don't think the, the whole gold watch is a thing anymore. You know, they, nobody gives an entire career to one company anymore because we're not loyal to them. But by the way, they're not loyal to us. You know, there was no such thing as mass layoffs on an annualized basis to balance the books. It didn't exist prior to the 1980s. It did not exist. Mass layoffs in the United States on an annualized basis to balance the books did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s. And it was this bastard by the name of Milton Friedman, who was an, a, a Nobel Prize winning economist right. that gave the guy a Nobel Prize, ugh, who basically proposed a theory of the responsibility of business, that the responsibility of business was to maximize profits within the bounds of the law. By the way, what about ethics? <laughs> the law is a much lower standard than ethics. You know, if, 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 I, if, I, if I cheat on my girlfriend and she confronts me with this and I say to her, so what? I broke no laws. I've done nothing wrong. I broke no laws. Oh, like, and then technically that's true. Oh, technically man. that's true. Yeah. But, you know, ethics is a higher standard than the law. But Milton Friedman made no, no uh, statement of that. And worse, he also was the guy who proposed that um, the people who run the companies, the executives who run the companies, should be responsible to their owners, not to their employees or their customers. So the whole concept of shareholder supremacy was really proposed in the late 1970s. That um, breaks down to one guy. Well, there's like some Harvard guys as well who also who also threw their hat in the whole shareholder supremacy thing. But it was really a, an idea that was proposed in the late 1970s, and it was popularized and really embraced throughout the 80s and 90s. And you have leaders like Jack Welch from GE who really 
embraced and perfected the idea that, you know, stock price is everything, being number one is everything. You rank and yank people, which means the people who contribute to the stock performance, the top 10% of those people, you promote them, and the bottom 10%, you fire them. And Yeah, the, he the, called it weeding the garden. So there was, there was a lot of really ridiculous ideas that were fine for the short term. They were perfectly fine in the finite game. The problem is, it's an infinite game. And GE needed a $300 billion bailout in 2008. And even these days, they're shambles. They're, they're, they're a shadow of their former selves. And um, the problem is the standards in business today are largely left over from a different time, from boom years of the 80s and 90s, it were a time of relative peace. Um, and so we still believe shareholder supremacy. We still believe uh, executives work for their quote unquote owners. Um, instead of for their customers and their employees. And we feel, you I mean, everybody who, who works knows what it feels like. We don't, f nobody has job stability anymore. And then companies are surprised that their people are disengaged or not loyal. Well, you don't give us loyalty. Why should we give it to you? I may be the best worker in the company, but this is not a meritocracy. If the company misses its arbitrary projections at the end of the, the fiscal year, my I, my entire livelihood could be wiped away for nothing that I've done. So why on earth would I be loyal? Um, and and unfortunately, this is this is the the life we live in today. Friedman and a lot of the business uh, theories that were put forward in the eighties and nineties that are now standard today are extremely finite minded. And so I I wrote this book to. Um, offer an alternative. Well, I have so many questions based on what you just said, but my, my first actually goes back to your upbringing because you're not born in America. No, I was born in England. And uh, you were in Johannesburg and Hong lived, Kong growing up? Lived in South Africa and Hong Kong. Yeah, four continents by the age of 10 years old, yeah. Does that help you see America in a different way? I don't think it helps me see America in a different way per se. Um, I think it definitely contributed to who I am and how I see the world, of course. Um, you know, I have an appreciation for cultures and subcultures. I have an appreciation for people who, who think different to me. I love subcultures. I love, uh, I love trying to understand nuance um, amongst, amongst the tribes. So I think my upbringing, I think, definitely informed the way I see the world, which has obviously contributed to my career. What happens when you grab a loose thread of an idea, like mm. the infinite game, the <laughs> finite game? What goes on in the creative process to get you to say, you know, I think I'm going to do something with this? And how do you know it's a book and then... How do you know you want to throw yourself into it? Because I imagine at that point it's an undertaking. So I'm I'm like everybody else. Um, I'm not unique in this respect, which is you know um, our minds attempt to solve problems that we 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 face, and and our we have there's our conscious brains, uh, which is the part of the brain we access when we access our expertise that we access when we make a list of pros and cons. You know, it's it's the thinking part of the brain, the That's neocortex. The frontal, frontal yeah. lobe. So our, our, our conscious brains have access to the equivalent of about two feet of information around us. 
right? Our subconscious brains have access to the equivalent of about 11 acres of information around us. But we, we can't access, this is every conversation we've ever had, every movie we've ever seen, every book we've ever, it gets stored somewhere, right? The problem is we can't consciously access it. And so the, the, the subconscious part of our brain doesn't ruminate unless a problem has been posed or a question has been asked. Um, we're all like that which is why we don't come up with the grand solution in the brainstorming session because we're accessing our expertise and we're thinking, but the value of the brainstorming session is it poses the problem or raises the question. Then we all go home. And you go into the shower. And you have in the shower <laughs> when you're going for a run or you're yeah. lying in bed or yeah. when your mind has an opportunity, when you're going for a walk, when your mind has an opportunity to wander, you're like, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't a thinking process. It kind of, it seems to come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's because it, your mind doesn't try and solve problems that you didn't first con confront or answer questions you didn't first ask. It doesn't just think about everything. It thinks about things that are relevant to you in this moment. So that's why the question must be asked. So my work, you know, throughout my life, like everybody, questions are raised. I, I face problems. All of my work is semi-autobiographical. What I've learned to do is I don't approach my work like a businessman. I don't make a back plan. Like, here's where I want to get to and I'm going to back plan to how to get there. I approach my work like an artist. It's a lot more chaos. It's a lot more hunting and pecking. And it's a lot, it's a lot more about pattern recognition. And so what I have gotten better at over the years is allowing space for my mind to wander. I take long showers. I, Me too. I go for a walk without my phone. Because here's the problem. When you walk, you know, I'm a New Yorker. So when I walk from my apartment to the subway to wherever I'm going, most of us are texting all the way to the subway. We're texting on the, you know, we're playing a game on the subway. We're texting. We don't, we're, we're engaging so often that we actually don't allow our minds to wander. I sit at home and I sit on the couch and I just listen to music. It's funny to me that people don't listen to music anymore. Music has become background or something you do when you're walking or running. Like, people don't listen to think music? Think about that. Like, like people, you call a friend and they're like, hey, can I call you back? I'm watching TV. Sure. But have you ever called a friend and said, hey, can I call you back? I'm listening to music. It doesn't happen. No. Right. So I'll sit at home and listen to music. I'll sit at home. I'll stand at home and look at my own art just stand there and look at a painting I bought five years ago and start to find new things that I didn't know were in it. The point is, is I've, I've gotten good at allowing my mind space. And so when I, as I said before, all of my work is semi-autobiographical, right? So my first book, Start With Why, um, was the result of my own problem. I had lost my passion for my own work. I wasn't an author, I wasn't a speaker, I wasn't any of these things, but I was somebody who didn't want to wake up and go to work every day. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I kept it to myself because it was embarrassing because superficially everything looked fine, but I didn't want to do it anymore. And that was a crisis for me, this total loss of passion. And I got very lucky. There was a conf confluence of events 
that I made this discovery about the biology. I usually cling on to something like the infinite game. I, James Carsey's work revealed something to me and start with why biology of the, of the human brain revealed something to me. In Leaders Eat Last, it was the anthropology of tribalism and the biology of trust that I latched onto, you know, because I see these things as, as potential for helping me solve my own problems. And that's when I learned with Start With Why that biologically, there's, there's, a, there's a way in which the brain makes decisions. You know, every one of us knows what we do. Some of us, knows, some of us know how we do it, but very few of us knew, know why we do what we do. That purpose cores a belief that inspires us to get out of bed every morning. And I realized that's the thing I was missing. It turned out it worked and it worked for my friends. And I had no idea that I would be a speaker and an author. It's just that people kept asking me to speak about it. So I said, yes. <laughs> Somebody offered to pay me to speak about it. I was like, yes. <laughs> because uh, I was doing it for free. I'd help people find their why for a hundred bucks on the side because I would love doing it. And somebody said, you should write a book about it. I had no idea about the process. I got introduced to one of the best uh, business authors, uh, business publishers in the, in the industry. And we had a 29 minute meeting and he offered me a book deal, you know? So I got very, very lucky that I had these opportunities. My second book, Leaders Eat Last, was again, semi-autobiographical, which is as my career was progressing, I started, I had a few experiences that really shook the foundation of trust for me. So I met, I'll give you one example. It happened multiple times, but I'll give you one example. You know, when you have a little bit of success, something funny happens, which is all your jokes are funnier. Oh yeah. you have a whole yeah. bunch of new friends. Right, it's, every CEO finds that Every out, CEO, right? anybody in the media, any actor, right. any, even anybody who gets a promotion at work, all of a sudden the people who you, you know, all of a sudden, if you got one level higher than everybody else, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, you got a couple new friends and- Laughter of the angels. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think most people are familiar with this experience, you know? And that was happening to me. I was by, you know, you know, it was sort of all of a sudden, People were nicer to me. And I had a couple of experiences where I was operating the way I always operated, which is naively. It's sort of <laughs> my MO. And uh, uh, this one guy I met, we met at an event. We hit it off. He said all the right things to me, me forgetting that I wrote a book called Start With Why that's basically a manual on how to talk to me. And uh, <laughs> he said all the right things. And uh, I really liked him. And we exchanged phone numbers and... We would talk on the phone and we would try and get together for a meal if we were in the same city and on our business trips. And he would tell me personal things like his failing, about his failing marriage. And, you know, it was friend stuff. I thought we were friends. This is the definition you know, of trust. call me on a Saturday and be like, hey, what are you up to? You know, right. it's like friends. And then one day he said, you know, do you want to work with me on a client I've got? And I'm like, I'd love to. I love working with my friends. And I went in and had a meeting and then he gave me a, a contract and some terms and I had a couple questions about some of the terms, no big deal. And he threw his hands up and said, clearly we can't agree and we can't work together. And then I never heard from him again. He was never my friend, he was working me. And it really shook me. Whoa. Yeah, it really shook me. I had, and, and so I like retreated, my walls went, my walls went sky high. Cause you didn't trust yourself? I mean, I just thought, I thought I treated him like I would treat anybody, right? I didn't, it never but, occurred to me, it never occurred to me that I was being worked. But and this is what I'm wondering about. Did you, it, it was that you didn't trust him or you didn't trust? I just didn't see through. Right. I didn't see the clues. Right. And it's not that I didn't trust, I didn't trust. It's, I, I, I trusted, that's what I do. And so I like my, I, my walls went up and I now refuse to trust anybody, which is really just not a good way to live. <laughs> 
Um, but at the same time, simultaneously, I was spending time with folks in the military. I was, you know, speaking on, got invited to speak on a couple bases and I'd spend some time with them. And I started writing about some of the folks that I was meeting. And uh, in business, we have colleagues and coworkers. And in the military, they have brothers and sisters. You know, they have a different relationship with the people they work with. And the level of trust, you know, in the military, you know, I'm fond of saying that in the military, they give medals to people who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that someone else may gain. In business, we give bonuses to people who are willing to sacrifice others so that we may gain. Oh, and, and I would meet these people and I would see that they would risk their lives. They would sacrifice their lives to save the life of someone they don't even like. Where in business, we don't even want to give up credit for something, let alone our lives. And I just started, I wanted to spend more time with them. And I started asking myself the question, why don't we have that in business? Like, why don't we have that kind of trust in business? Why can't we have brothers and sisters in business? And I thought it was the people. I just thought they were better people. And this breed of better people were attracted to the military, you know, because that's what better people do. They serve. No, it's the same. And so I went to find out. Because I'm I'm a curious I'm a curious little kid who keeps asking why does that happen. I called in a uh, I called in some favors and I got the opportunity to go and visit some training bases, and watch how they train because I wanted to see what they do with all these better people. And the more I started to learn, the more I realized my theory was completely wrong. They're not better people. It's the environment, and that's it's that if you get the environment right, we're social animals. We respond to the environment we're in. If you create this thing that I call the circle of safety. What you get is trust and cooperation. It's just a natural human response to the environment we're in. You know, you, you, we're all, we all respond to the environment we're in. You know, if you take a, a good person and you put them in a bad environment, that person will do bad things. If you take somebody who may have done untrustworthy things or, uh, you know, and you put, change their environment, they, can, they become remarkable, wonderful members of society. And so um, my trouble with trust wasn't me. It wasn't them. It's that I had to learn where trust came from. And I started learning about the biology of trust. You know, we, we always say things like, trust is important. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, that doesn't help me, <laughs> you know? So I, 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 I just, again, it wasn't supposed to be a book. It was me solving my own problems that I was struggling with trust at the time. And I had some ideas about it. I, it was a total coincidence. I happened to be having dinner with my publisher. And he says, what do you, what do you, working on these days. I was like, oh, well, I've been dealing with this issue. And I told him what I'd been learning is I'll publish that. 29 minutes later, you had well, another that, book that, deal. that one was a dinner. That one was probably a little longer than 29 <laughs> minutes. And, uh, and now this new book, The Infinite Game, is the same struggle. It's, it's my personal struggle, which is I am an idealist who talks about, look, it's embarrassing that I have a career. I talk about trust and cooperation. There should be no demand for my work, right? There should be no demand. Those things should be normal. And I can promise you that I could not have a career in the 80s and 90s. I would have been laughed out of the room because that's when all those finite theories were sort of coming to bear. And I came in and said, no, guys, it's about cooperation and loving each other. And, you know, I, I mean, I would not have had a career in those days. So the fact that I do have a career means other people like me feel that they, they're lacking in trust and cooperation at work especially. And we want more trust and cooperation. And we want deep, meaningful relationships in our lives. We want these things. And the rat race that, that we're supposed to all be in, uh, the overwhelming pressures around us to win, be number one, be the best, short-term, short-term, now, 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 
we're all subject to these pressures at every level of career, whether you're a junior, whether you're a senior. And, and when I sort of raise my hand and say, there's got to be a better way, maybe business shouldn't work that way, I'm the one who's called naive. I'm the one who's accused that I don't know how business works. And so it, 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 it gets hard after a while. So I start asking myself, how can one be an idealist in a world where quote unquote reality is putting pressure on me to literally abandon my ideals? And that's when I discovered this theory of, of finite and infinite games. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm not naive and I'm not stupid. I'm playing with a different mindset. And here's the folly. All of those people who are telling me that I'm naive, that I don't understand how it works, they're playing with the, mon the wrong mindset for the game they're actually in. They are in an infinite game and they're playing with finite mindsets. And so it was, it was again, it was a beautiful feeling that I, I it, you know, because that's the problem. When everybody tells you you're stupid, you start to believe them, you know? Oh, uh, but, but what's it like when you have that revelation? You know, you you make it sound like it's a like a every every one of them is a eureka moment. Is that no? These things are evolutions. You know, there are eureka moments within where there's nuance. Like, oh my god, did you see that? Because I do, I do have that. I do have like, well, I I will suddenly see a pattern. I'd be like, <gasps> you got to see this. You know, like they're definitely. But but the the actual the actual sort of ideas evolve up to the point. You know, I didn't like wake up one morning and have start with why, you know, there were pieces of it that were coming together. And then you're like, oh my God, this is bigger than I thought it was. Right. And it's the same thing with Leaders Eat Last. I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's not me. It's the environment. But there were so many steps before that happened. It's a forwards moving creative process, more, more chaotic than a back planning process of business. That might... I don't set out to write books. I, after I wrote the first one, I never thought I'd write another one. So I never thought I'd ever write one. I was never one of those people who like, you know, everybody has a book in them. I, I never ha thought I did. So to me, it's sort of incredible that I'm on my fifth, which is sort of mind boggling to me. Is it painful to you to write a book? You, you, you know, there's the old Red Smith line about uh, writing is easy. All you got to do is take out a razor blade and slash your wrist and uh, and bleed no writing writing sucks i mean there are moments of amazingness i mean when you you're you're inspired and you're jamming and you you're you're in the flow and you're like your ideas are amazing your sentences are gorgeous you read them to somebody and they're like you know it's you give yourself goosebumps you know as you read <laughs> oh my god those moments are magical but the problem is the actual writing of a book like the problem isn't the writing of a few of the pages. The problem isn't the writing of a, a, a 10 page section. The problem is how the hell do you organize 250 pages worth of information in a way that other people want to turn the page? You know, most business books are glorified articles. You know, there's, there's, there's not 250 pages worth of information in, in there. And so do I not have 250 pages of information? Oh, like, like these are challenges. Because I'm the first to say, I have a lot of great ideas that people say to me, you should write a book. And I go, eh, it's an article. That's, that's, that's not a book. That's, that's an article. I'll write the article. It's not a book. You know, a book has to be able to start with something and go deeper and deeper and deeper and take you on a journey. And anybody who says, I wrote a book, it was so easy. That's a shitty book. 
you know? That's a great line. You know, that, that's it's just not a good book. I, I, I have no doubt they wrote the book. I have no doubt it was easy for them. I, most of us won't get much, you know, it's not a good book. And whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, writing is very hard because it's linear. You know, speaking, and people are like, oh, I just, I just, I just dictated it to myself. Speaking is very forgiving, very forgiving. You can speak out of order. You can speak in half sentences and just stop and, the and audience keep going. Pre- the like, audience I, you don't even have to finish. Yeah. You don't have to finish the sentence. There's a gestalt. People will keep track. And this, you know, you and I can have conversation. And if you, if we were to play, if we were to, if we were to transcribe this conversation verbatim, and you would attempt to read it, it would be awful. We're interrupting ourselves. We're interrupting each other. There's half thoughts. There's complete thoughts. There's changes of direction. It doesn't work that way. Writing a book is linear. There's a page one and a page two and a page three and a page four. And if you lose someone, that's it. You're done. You're done. So it has to be interesting. And the writing style has to hold. I mean, there's so many factors. Combined with the fact that I... My strengths are, I'm a team guy. I love working with somebody. Like, it's fun for me to talk with you, right? But if you just gave me a microphone by myself and put me in a studio, it wouldn't be like this because I'm enjoying talking to you, right? So for me, writing plays to, writing a book plays to all my weaknesses because it's solitary. And even if I trade my ideas with somebody, even if I work with someone, at some point I have to sit at the computer by myself and write. And so it's... Do you do that at a certain time, like at three in the morning when there's quiet? You know, I wish I had a formula. Every book I wrote, what made me most productive was completely different for each one. And so I, I tried to apply whatever worked the, for the previous book, for the next book, and it didn't work. <laughs> oh, so, so I don't even have That's a formula. torture. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah, the first book I, I wrote on planes. I was so I real so I remember when I got the book deal I was like okay I have to scale back my schedule cuz I have to sit at home and write this damn book and I would sit there and I would get nothing done and it was and I was like okay this is okay I'll try again tomorrow and get nothing done and then I'd have to go on a business trip and I'd take my computer with me and I'd write the whole way and I'd be like ah oh. cuz cuz this is this is before they had good internet on the planes as well so basically and, and I think it was even before they used to have plugs at every seat either. So I'd have a computer with a fully charged battery. And basically, I would just write until the battery ran out. And I couldn't email anybody. And I couldn't text anybody. And I couldn't surf the internet. No distractions. So I just wrote. And so when I realized this, I started booking flights to nowhere. So I called, <laughs> oh, no. I called, I called Delta Airlines. I no, I did this. I called Delta Airlines. I'm like, all right. And I was really honest with the agent. She was wonderful. It was many of them. I'm like, all right, here's the deal. I just need to be in the air for at least three hours, three, three and a half hours. I don't care where I go. Uh, I want a cheap ticket and, um, and, a, and a light load on the aircraft so that there's a high probability that the status will get me a free upgrade. And so we sat down and we found a bunch of flights. The agent was amazing. She helped me find a bunch of flights. So I flew to Orlando and back. And I, got, I showed up at the airport with my computer under my arm, nothing else. You would go to Orlando. Yeah, I flew to Orlando, got off the get, plane. Get off the plane. Have a cup of coffee, get back on and fly back to New York. I flew to Arizona and back. The best one was... This is one of the great writing this is the best. The, be, the best one. The best one is I flew to LA and back in one day. I got on the plane at like 10 or 11, flew to LA, 
wrote the entire way, wrote like 2,500 words, got off, had a slice of pizza or a whole pizza, California pizza kitchen at the airport terminal, got back on the plane with the same crew and flew home. And I was home by 10 or 11 o'clock at night and went to bed. I went to LA and I I got all my best writing done on planes. Yeah. So, so I would, I would book these flights to nowhere for, for the, for start with why. So for Leaders Elast, Now you got to be thinking, okay, I know the drill. Right. Exactly. So second book comes around. I'm like, I know exactly what to do here. <laughs> so I booked my flight. I did the same thing, booked myself a cheap flight. You know, it's like 200 bucks or something, you know, light loads, all the same rules. I'm literally sitting in the taxi, driving to JFK airport. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. I can't do this. Because what I've neglected was that, that my life had changed from when I first wrote Start With Why. I lived on planes after that. Like I was traveling so much that the thought of getting on another plane was like... Oh, it was sapping your energy. It was like, it was like I, wanted to, I wanted to kill myself. And I remember I was, I was getting ready to write this new book and I booked my flight and I was driving to JFK and I, I was dreading it. And I said to the taxi driver, turn around. I never made it to the airport. Oh, yeah. man. Never made it to the airport. I turned right around and came back home. So now, so now what happens? So now what happens? Now you need a whole new strategy. You need a whole new strategy. So I know that I like working with people. So... Um, what I did was I basically hired a babysitter where um, someone would come to my house and just keep me company. I didn't care what they did. They could surf the internet. They could do whatever they wanted. And every now and then they would look up and say, are you writing? I'd be like, yes, I'm writing. Like just having somebody there made me accountable because I can't just like stand in front of the fridge for an hour, which I could do. And I couldn't just like sit and watch movies oh, because, you're the because, because I'm supposed to be writing. And if somebody's like, why are you watching TV? You're supposed to be writing. Like I'm accountable. It's like, it's, it's no different than having a gym buddy. You're like, you know, we're good at disappointing ourselves, but we don't like disappointing other people. Right. I, I can wake up at six o'clock in the morning, all revved up to go to the gym by myself and just change my mind. <laughs> and I'll just sit in bed till, you know, Noon, (laughs) you know, I'm really, really good at letting myself down guilt-free. I feel nothing. No one comes. I'm good. I'm like, and I'll say to myself, "Ah, I didn't go to the gym. Right now, if somebody says to me, (laughs) I will meet you at the gym at 730, I'll be there at 730 because I can let myself down, but I will not let them down. Right. It's no different. We all we all do things where we have accountability buddies or we tell somebody thing out, you know, we say things out loud of what our goals or ambitions are so that we're held accountable. Like this is not a new idea. I just did it for my work ethic because I, I have a shitty work ethic. So uh, so now you're bringing in baby, same babysitter or different baby, mostly the same person. And now, how do you call up some, somebody to offer them a job to basically babysit a book? So I, a friend of mine is a choreographer. And I said, do you have any, um, do you know any, uh, do you have any, know any dancers or creative people who have what they call survival jobs, which is their waiters and their waitresses and their hosts and hostesses because they just need to make money so they can do their art, right? I said, give me somebody who's got a good, strong personality who won't put up with my shit and, and just let me, let me talk to them. And basically I found this wonderful, uh, uh, she happened to be a modern dancer and, um, I asked her what she does. She works as a, as a, as a front desk person in a gym or something. I asked her how much do they pay you? She told me, 
I said, I'll pay the exact same thing so that you'll turn down their shifts and take mine, right? So you're not going to lose money. So she said, sounds good. And so she, she could surf the internet and look for auditions or read a book. I didn't mind. And it was great because she would also like help me out. And um, I, would, I loved reading stuff to her and she would give me comments. And I really liked the backwards and forwards. It was, re- I, it, it was actually, you know, I, I call it babysitter because it's funny. But it really was, um, it was really a, a creative partner. It was, I, I, I would read her, I would write a paragraph and read it to her. I'd write an idea and, and she would say, no, that doesn't make sense. And she was great. She was wonderful. What did it feel like for her when you finished? Because she's part of this process. Um, I, 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 I mean, she has to have felt some ownership, I guess. I, I mean, there must have been some pride. I mean, we became friends. I mean, there was, there was real That's beautiful. There was real joy that, for both of us. And I was really supportive of her career. And it was great to hear when she got an audition. And, you know, I was flexible and she was flexible. Can you come in on Thursday? No, but how about Friday? You know, we would, it wasn't like you have to be here every day. It was really, it was really, I worked with her schedule and she worked with mine. So I didn't work with her every day. I worked with her probably once or twice a week when she could come in, right? So by the time now in, in, Infinite Game comes around, I'm now. like, all right, I need a, I need a babysitter. So I didn't <laughs> no, work. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Why? I don't know. I wish I knew. It didn't work. Did you, you got the babysitter? I had somebody. I had a friend who volunteered. It didn't work. And how long did it take you to figure out that Pretty this quick. is not... Just like with the plane, it's like I'm on the way to the air, you know, the plane, I turn around, I'm like, this is not going to work. But at least this time you knew, okay, I pivoted and I figured it out. Yeah. All I got to do is pivot. Yeah. So how'd you do this one? Boy, you're really, you're really pulling the curtain back here, aren't you? (laughs) No, this is fascinating They warned me me about you. I'm fascinated. You do realize, they said to me, I, you do realize if you go on his show, they said, you won't be talking about your work. You're going to be talking about you. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. I can redirect. <laughs> Not working. I, but you, you're leaving me like I'm at the edge of a cliff now because how did you get the third one, the, the, the third of the, the so, trio here done? So the, <laughs> so the infinite game process, the writing process there was more one of uh, uh, frustration which was I was working at home and my dining room table was piled up with 15, 20, 30 books, you know, research, papers everywhere. And like if somebody wanted to come over, like if I wanted to have somebody come over for dinner, I'd have to like take all of this book, all these books and all this research and like pile it up on the floor. So then I'd have piles of books on the floor up against the wall. And then they, you know, I'd have a nice dinner with someone and then, and I would sit on the couch and work sometimes. And I, I realized what was happening is my, I could no longer tell the difference between my personal life and my professional life, where the couch that I sat on to relax and watch TV was the couch that I sat on to be stressed out and be working. And I would look over at my dinner table, because remember, I live in New York City. It's just, you can just see your dinner table. It's right over there, you know? Uh, I would look at my dinner table, the table that I could sit at to have breakfast, but I couldn't because it was just, it was a computer on it. And, it was, and I realized this is, this is no way to live. I've turned my home into an office. And so I got an office <laughs> and moved all the books in my computer to the office. And, and how did uh, that feel? Did it liberate you? Yeah, and- yeah. So then, so for the first time in my life, wow. you know, I would work at random hours. At, you asked, you know, is it two o'clock in the morning? It used to be random hours. And once I got the office, it was really, I treated it like a job. I go to the office in the morning, I work on the book all day, 
And then when I'm tired and when I'm done, I leave the office and then I come home and I don't work anymore. I treated it, I treated it, this last book, I treated it like a job. Uh, and it was great. Didn't, you know, except, you know, with rare occasion, with rare exceptions, didn't work. Uh, tried not to work too late and tried not to work on weekends. Like I said, it's an imperfect, inexact science, but uh, yeah, tried, tried, tried hard to treat it, treat it like the office, like I'm going to the office. And then the papers could be piled up and the books could be piled up and, and I could come home and it became a, um, a place that I could actually disconnect because I couldn't see my work all around me when I got back home. So I, it, the problem wasn't, wasn't that I don't like working at home. The problem was that I couldn't disconnect myself from the, from, I, couldn't, I couldn't relax. This is wild. I remember talking to Robert <laughs> Caro, the guy who did. Uh, I can't believe the, anyone would find any of this interesting, by the oh, way. Oh, are you kidding me? Really? Do you know how many people out there trying to write and, and they can't figure these things out? You know, every, and authors, you know, they all say like, you treat it, you know, I like to show up in the morning and write 2,500 words a day, whether it's good or bad. Right. You just got to write. Yeah. And some people are like, you know, that's not my style. My, my style is largely defined as uh, of days, if not weeks, of guilt and self-loathing, oh, no. punctuated by hours of sheer brilliance, <laughs> but I never know when those hours are going to strike. And so I have to show up and, and so I can't, I can't sit down and write 2,500 words a day. I can't do it. I can't set a goal and write it because I, I can't. I can't be satisfied writing shit. I would rather write two gorgeous paragraphs than 10 pages of stuff that I'm just going to throw out the next day. So, but that works for some. It works for some. It just doesn't work for me. And so I think one of the things for any would-be writer uh, is, is absolutely take advice from other writers, but it's really finding your own your own groove. And like I said, for me, my groove has changed this, with every book. This is phenomenal. So I, I interrupted you. you were no, say no, something. no, because generally what happens in talking to other writers, they find their groove once. Yeah. I guess Robert Carroway has done the definitive biographies on Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, I believe he has an office in his house, but he would get up and he would put on like his suit and tie yeah. and go to his office and get his work done because he needed to think, I'm going to the office, even though he was still in his house. Yeah, it's the exact same thing for me. Like, because when I was working at home, I wouldn't shower, I wouldn't brush my hair. I would put on sweatpants and a t-shirt, you know, I'd stand in front of the fridge for a long time and I, that would be working. And there is a there is a, um, there is something to be said for preparing to work, you know, to have a shower, get dressed, be presentable for the general population, you know, not smell too badly, you know. There there is something to be said for that for that preparing to go to work that was definitely healthier for me. And you got Salman Rushdie, Midnight's Children author, gets up before he even goes to the bathroom races to the keyboard because he feels like he's got this overnight energy, dreamy, whatever it is that's got to come out. But here's the difference. This is what fascinates me about you. Generally, when people find their one way to do it, they stick to it where you're constantly in flow state. Man, this is Bruce Lee stuff. I think you give me way too much credit. <laughs> 
I think, uh, you know, I envy those that can find one thing and then it sticks for their whole life. It doesn't work for me. Um, because, and the reason is simple for me, which is my life is changing and evolving. I'm a different person. The, the people around me, uh, you know, you make new friends, new challenges, new obstacles. And so, you know, what got me here won't get me there. And the way I solved a problem before sometimes can work, but sometimes it doesn't. And that's what got me in trouble the first time with Start With Why, which is, you know, I, I fell out of love with my own work and I would say to myself, but you, people would say, well, people, you know, people would give me advice. And, and I was like, but you don't understand. I'm doing the same thing. I don't love it anymore. Like I used to love it. Like six months ago, I loved it. Nothing's changed. Like what, like why did I fall out of love with something that's the same? And so, you know, I, I that the, the and what I what I never recognized was my life was changing and I was changing and it wasn't the same and the challenges six months ago were different. Superficially, it looked the same, but it wasn't the same, you know. And so the stresses were new and the clients were new, and the work was different, and my approach to the work was different and I had learned more and I was wiser. I had learned I'd made more mistakes, and so, you know. I think very often we beat ourselves up. We, we blame ourselves, you know, that quote unquote, I can't do something or something's wrong. And what we fail to recognize is that we are different people than we were. You know, hopefully we're growing and we're learning about ourselves and we're learning from our mistakes and our relationships are deeper and we're more honest with ourselves and we take accountability for some of the things, you know, that we were not proud of in the past, you know, maybe with the way we reacted in a situation, you know, you know, maybe you were short-tempered and you're like, ah, shit. You know, you learn, you're different, you're better. Better version of yourself. And I think, I think, in, I, I, I learned the lesson the hard way with Start With Why because what I went through was depression because I beat myself up. And since then, I thought, wait, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's just the process. Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's just the way I'm approaching the problem. Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's, maybe it's that what worked then won't work now. And so instead of beating myself up and saying that I'm the one that needs to change, I've learned to say, hold on, I am different. My world is different. The process needs to change. Now, I don't always know when that's going to happen or how it's going to happen, but I sort of embrace the surprise. I embrace the uncertainty. And, and, and the world is uncertain and we can, you, you, the more you try and control it, the, you know, you're, you're not going to do well, you know, there's, um, as a, there's a Marine who told me no plan ever survives contact with the enemy. You wow. Know? And, Great and I, line. Yeah. And, and I think it's true for all of us. You know, there's that, was that funny line, you know, if, if you want to make, make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right. You know, and I think, I think we all know this intellectually. Like everybody knows this. But then we still make these plans as if they're going to go fine. And, uh, and I've learned, it took me a long time and I'm still working on it, but I've learned to embrace the unknown I've learned to view surprises as an opportunity to grow. I've learned to view surprises as something that are uh, helpful rather than hurtful. I've learned to view when the plan gets punched in the side to say, ooh, that's an opportunity rather than how do I force the plan to stay on track. And I, I think that, that one lesson has probably been one of the most valuable lessons of my life. Um, is to is to view uncertainty as an opportunity rather than a liability. 
It is so wild for me to have this conversation with you at just this moment. As you see, there's a book in front of us. Uh, it's about Frederick Law Olmsted. It's a biography. This is the guy who created Central Park, which I have a feeling you must have spent a lot of time walking around and thinking in. I have. And it's so a good park. When, you, when you think of the space that he created that in, helped enable those thoughts, because from what you were telling me in the beginning of the conversation, maybe something gets sparked in a brainstorming session, but it's got to come out in a different place. It has to gestate, yeah. And so I've been thinking about almost everything you just went through because I've been going through something very similar where I was writing for Esquire magazine for 20 years, interviewing icons who shaped the world. And then all of a sudden, the whole industry just started to shift. And now I am plugging wires into a little recorder that you were admiring, and I've got a podcast. And now I'm speaking. And I was talking to a guy that I didn't, had no idea I was gonna meet. And he started throwing questions at me. And he said, Cal, like you think you're a journalist, but you're really not. And I said, what do you mean? I just spent like 40 years of my life doing this. You're telling me not? He takes me home and he gives me that book. It's called Genius of Place. It's about Frederick Law Olmsted. And he said, read this book. You're gonna see this guy who created Central Park, he started out as a journalist. Wow. Then he went on and he said, Cal, that's you. That's beautiful. And I said, well, that's beautiful, but now <laughs> what the hell do I do about yeah. it? I don't know how to make a park. Yeah. And of course he wasn't talking about a park. Metaphorical park. But he was saying, Cal, you can change places. Yeah. And what, just hearing that, mm. and then I know at the same time, CEOs of companies have said to me, can you come in mm. and look at our stories mm. and see how we're crafting them and help us craft them? And I'm starting to do that. And now I'm thinking, wow, maybe I'm changing these places. Mm. So my question's not why, but maybe my question is, all right, I'm on this journey. Mm, an infinite journey. You see, your career is not finite. You're, and I think we make this mistake. Too many of us define our value or even define ourselves by the work we do. I am a journalist. Oh, man. Right? So uh, what happens if you stop being a journalist? Then what, you're nothing. Then your, your life has no value. You know? That, it, it, you know, I am a banker. I am a lawyer. I am a teacher. I am a mother. You know, so when your kids leave, out, leave the house and they don't need you every day in their lives, would you have a crisis of personality? Do you have a, you know, a crisis of identity? And I think the answer is yes. So many of us have identified our value uh, or, or too closely associate our own identity with the job that we have, that if that job, so that's one of the reasons I think we become so defensive and, and sort of ferocious about staying in the job or holding on to the job or holding on to the plan because it's not just stability of job, it's stability of identity. Whoa. And, uh, and so, you know, you'll, if you ever see a blurb of mine on the back of somebody else's book, 
they, they, I'm very, very strict about how they identify me. And it'll always say, Simon Sinek, optimist and author of Star With Why, blah, 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 blah. I will not let them define me by best-selling author. By the work that I've done. If you want to define me by anything, you define me by who I am. So if I never write another book again, am I a writer? If I never give another speech again for the rest of my life, am I a speaker? I was a speaker. I was a writer. I have written. I have spoken. And so... But you're always an optimist. But I'm always an optimist. You can't take that away from me. And so, you know, I live my life by my why. I... I I am defined by what I believe and who I am, and I will look for many ways to do it. I will speak, I will write, I will teach, I will advise, and I will find things to do to advance my cause that I couldn't even conceive of right now, just like I could never have conceived prior that I would be a writer or a speaker or in any of these things. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that I, any, I would do any of those things because I was a marketer. <laughs> I worked at an ad agency. I am an ad man, right? So how, I could have no imagination for my life beyond this one finite path that I had arbitrarily put myself on. I literally couldn't see any other highways. I couldn't see any other routes. I couldn't see the beauty that might be 100 miles to the left or the beauty that might be 100 miles to the right. I could only see what was ahead of me. Because that was the path I put myself on. This is my career. This is who I am. This is what I do. Right? And for me, it was crisis that pushed me off the road. Right? I was forced to take another path. In so doing, I realized, this road is beautiful. (laughs) And I think very often what we do in our lives is people are so certain about the path that they're on, but they have no sense of destination. Why do you do what you do? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? And we don't know the answer to that question. And so we choose the thing that's easier to see, which is the thing right in front of us, the thing that's more immediate, the job that I'm doing. And then we build a plan. We build an entire path forwards, a route based on right now. But we actually don't know where we're going. So at the end of our career, we go, I guess that was good. Well, how do you know? I made a lot of money, I got a bunch of promotions, I did some good work. Was it worth it? Did you contribute to the world? Do you feel successful? Not were you successful, do you feel successful? And those questions start to become more difficult. And so I think it's, I, instead of being certain of the path and uncertain of the destination, I would rather be certain of the destination and, and, and agnostic as to the path. I know where I need to get to. I want to build a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe at work, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. That is unwavering. That will never change. That's why I get out of bed every morning. I have a vision of the world. I believe leaders and leadership is the way to get there. So I've devoted my career to finding, building, supporting the people who are more likely to create that world uh, than not. How am I going to get there? No clue. How am I going to find them, build them, and support them? No idea. I'll try this speaking thing. That seems to work for now. I'll try this writing thing. That seems to work for now. I'll try this advising thing. That seems to work for now. But it's going to change. It has to change. And this is where I think so many industries are stupid, right? Why is it, why is it that the music industry didn't invent iTunes? Why was it a computer company? 
Why is it that the publishing industry didn't invent Amazon or the e-reader? Why was it an a, 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 a upstart computer company? Why is it that the movie and TV industry didn't invent Netflix? Why was it somebody new? It's because why is it that publishing freaked out when the internet was invented? It's because they define themselves by what they did. They define themselves by, we're a newspaper, oh, we're a magazine. Man. They never said, we're in the reading industry. Wow. We're in the sharing information industry because as soon as the glimmers of the internet would have, were, were to show up, everyone in publishing would have been like, get on that bandwagon, but they didn't. They waited and waited and waited and resisted and resisted and clung on to their old business models, the path that they were on, the path of certainty. <laughs> <laughs> until they were forced off the road by someone else, right? So industries do it as much as individuals. I guess industries are made up of individuals. So it is a, it is a, it is a, we, we, we falsely believe that what we know now is more secure than, than the unknown. But what if, oh man, that, what if that runs out of time, then what? And so, and so if you define yourself by what you believe, by who you are, by, by, by the world you want to live in, and you're agnostic as to the path you take, I am not a writer, and yet I write books. Figure that one out. I have no clue. When I, wrote, when I got the book deal for Start With Why, they said to me, can you write a book? And my honest answer was, I don't know. I'd never written more than 20 pages because that was the longest paper I ever had to write for college, maybe 30, although I probably only wrote 20, you know? <laughs> I never wrote a dissertation. Do you know why not? Because I didn't, no. couldn't imagine, I didn't know how to write 100 pages. So I just like, I'm not gonna write a dissertation. I'm not gonna write a thesis because I can't write 100 pages. I can write 20. I'm a short form guy. 20 is too long. If I, got a, if I got an assignment to write five pages, I wrote six. I've got, an, I've got an assignment to write 10 pages, I wrote six. You know, that was my max. I'm a six page guy. <laughs> so I had no clue, but I knew where I had to get to. I knew, where I, I knew where I wanted to go, and I still know where I want to go. So you can define me by who I am, but you can't define me by what I do. And because the things that I'm doing are temporary, all of them. Eventually, all of them will stop. Eventually, my eyes will get bad, and I'll get arthritis in my hands, and I won't be able to write anymore. And eventually, I'll, I'll be too decrepit to get on a plane and give speeches anymore. Or that, I'll just, that doesn't or, sound too optimistic. No, it's called reality. Okay. Like all things come to an end. My writing career will come to an end. My speaking career will come to an end. But why can't my vision of the world live on beyond me? So it's my responsibility not to maximize book sales or maximize speeches. My responsibility is, is, to, is to make sure that the vision I have for the world is so clear and the, and the ideas that I have and the, uh, that may contribute to the building of that world are so helpful and valuable that other people will continue to build upon them long after I'm gone. I've learned to define my value and my success in my career not based on hitting arbitrary projections, but by momentum. How many book sales, how many books I sold last year, who gives a shit, right? How many books I sold last month? I don't care. The question is momentum. I care about momentum. I want, I want things to go by themselves where they don't need me anymore, right? And so Start With Why is 10 years old. This book came out in 2009. It is 10 years old. And it is selling just as well, if not better now than it did any other prior year. That's called momentum. I want momentum. 
I want, I want, I would rather sell a book that is never a bestseller. And by the way, Start With Why is not a New York Times bestseller. How funny is that? Right? Because I, know, I always just assume it's not a New York Times bestseller. It sells better than most New York Times bestsellers, but it's not a New York Times bestseller because it never has met the formula that nobody really knows of what makes a New York Times bestseller. I know people who have bought New York Times bestseller. You can actually hire a company that knows how to buy books across the country at certain quantities. And for one week, you'll show up on New York Times bestsellers <laughs> list. And, and you, can now say for the, you can say for the rest of your life, I'm a yeah. New York Times bestseller because you made it on the list once that you paid for. Like you can game every algorithm. You want to be an Amazon bestseller? Easy. Get all of your friends to buy the book the same hour. If you get everybody to buy the book the same hour, you can jack up the, the book sales in a short period of time. And for the rest of time, you will be <laughs> an number, number one, one Amazon, Amazon bestseller in your category. <laughs> In your category. It's hard to do for the whole of Amazon. But in your category, you can say that for the rest of your life. Okay? But to me, I'm more proud of Start With Why that it's never been a New York Times bestseller, but has been selling for 10 years without advertising, without marketing. You know? That the book sells more because other people say to their friends, you should read this. The, my TED Talk grew not because of marketing, not because some, some algorithm that was gamed, but because somebody forwarded it to their friend and said, you should watch this. That to me is more valuable. Like if I tweet something, what's more valuable to me than how many followers I have or how many likes it gets is how many retweets it gets. That's the, that's the number I care about. Because what that says is, I somebody said, this is so valuable. I'm passing it I'm going to share it with someone from me. I'm, I want to share this with my friends because I care about this message. And Simon captured in words something that I know inside myself to be true. And I've just not had the words. And thank you. He put it into words for me. That, that is more valuable to me. The retweet is more valuable to me than the number of likes, the number of followers. Those are the things I care about. Momentum. Momentum in one's career. So that one day, hopefully a long life, we will lie, sit in our rocking chairs, <laughs> drinking lemonade out on the porch, <laughs> talking to our kids and great-grandchildren, and we will rock, our we rock ourselves and say, that was a life worth living because it's still going on without me. Because what I started is still going. Right? And that can be at any scale. That, isn't, that, isn't that what... Well, you have kids? Exactly. Isn't that what it means to be a great parent? That the values you instill in your children and the lessons you instill in your children, they instill in their children. That the, 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 they live their lives and are the people that they have become because of you, their parent. Not despite you, but because of you. Like, if you have one... If, if you're a coach or a teacher... That, that some of your students go on to achieve remarkable things. And when asked in interviews, you know, how did you become the person you are? They say the name of the coach. They say the name of the teacher. Right. Like, isn't that what it's all about? It doesn't have to be at grand scale. It can be twos and threes. You know, a teacher gets 30 kids a year. And if one or two of those kids go on to be something special to the people around them, just to the people around them because of you, this is what momentum means. And by the way, that's infinite. 
There is no end to that game. A teacher shows up every day to give their students something that they will carry with them for the rest of their lives that goes beyond the curriculum that they're required by law to teach. You know, this, this is what, how do you measure a career based on momentum rather than absolutes? Congratulations, you hit X amount of revenues at the end of the tax year, which is what our financial years are based on when we pay taxes. If we pay taxes every 18 months, the financial year would be 18 months. In other words, arbitrary. Now, metrics are important. You know, goals are important. Timeframes are important. You, it would be impossible to run a marathon with no mile markers. We need to know how fast we're going. We need to know how far we've gone because we need to know how to pace ourselves. Are we going fast? Are we going slow? Am I running too fast? Will I run out of steam? Like you got to know the metrics. You got to know the timeframes. But the annual year, the fiscal year is just a mile marker. It's not the end of the race. We have to stop viewing the end of the fiscal year as, as, the, as the end of the game and then doing another one and another one and another one and another one. It's simply a mile marker. That's all it is. You got You got more race to go, my friend. Maybe you're going fast, maybe you're going slow. Take accountability, adjust if necessary. Calculate the distance, sure. But it's not the start of a new race the next fiscal year. It's the same race. And so the question is, how do we adjust? How do we all adjust our mindsets to stop thinking that career or success is a series of finite games? It's not. It's one infinite game. And the question is, how do we start to measure momentum as a, as, a, as, a, as a metric of success? And that includes joy. You know, I, I enjoy this. That's what gives me momentum, right? Passion. I can't stand it when people talk about passion as an output. We only hire passionate people. Do, you know what you need? I, it says here in your review, more passion. You know, you can't tell someone be passionate. Like, no. can, you, can you imagine, you know, going home and kissing your wife and saying, honey, more passion. <laughs> it, it'll make her well, so that insecure. Would, that would get me in a lot of trouble. But it, would get, but it would also make her really insecure. You can't tell, passion is an output, not an input. You can't tell someone, put passion in. Passion is something that comes out when you are involved in something that you deeply believe in. And if you put me in a situation where I have deep connection to whatever this is, whether it's a person, a situation, a job, what you will get is passion. Everyone in the world is passionate. We're just not passionate for the same things. That's why we only hire passionate people. Well, they're passionate for interviewing. They're not so passionate for working. You know, passion is an output and it's, it absolutely is a metric. But it's a metric, it's, it's an output. So if, if, you, if you perceive, if you are able to see and measure passion in your people, that's because of something that you've given them, that's the environment you've created, that's an output. That's an output. Because a passionate person here, you put them in a different company and it'll suck the living life out of them. And the problem is they'll blame themselves. I'm usually a passionate person. What am I doing wrong? No, 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 it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. It's the world you're working in. Find a new boss, find a new job, find a new environment, or take responsibility to change the environment, be the leader you wish you had. Change the environment for the people around you so that their passion is released. That's what makes you a leader. The leader is the one who creates the environment that releases the passion in those around us. That's the leader's job, like a parent. A parent is responsible for creating an environment that will release the passion in their children. It's the same thing. A coach is responsible for creating an environment that will release the passion in their, in their athletes. It's the same thing. It's all the same thing. A coach, a teacher, a parent, a leader. 
Our job is not to advance ourselves. The coach doesn't run into the game and grab the ball. At best, the coach can only scream from the sidelines. Yeah. At best. Our parents should not go into the school and, and do our homework for us and take the test for us. Our parents can't call the company and say, has my son got the job yet? <laughs> and your boss can't do your work for you. And nor should they. Because they're, they're not giving you the opportunity to play in the game, take the test, grow, learn, evolve. That's a leader's job. That is the job of leadership. It's not to be better at the job than the people who work for you and tell them how to do it your way. Do you know what? I, I don't think I have been this relaxed in the last five years. You have given me permission to be myself and just continue on with the journey knowing there's no finish line. And, that's, and that, by the way, is a beautiful thing. It, it should make you, to some people that'll be unnerving, to the, to the most extreme finite players, to tell them that there's no end and all of the achievements aren't final and are no calculation of value is, is really hard to hear. Because a lot of people have built an entire career based on that model. And we're about to shake it. We're shaking it. And I'm okay with that, by the way. I don't think this is necessarily right for everybody. Right? I think if you're a consummate finite player, then you should go do the thing that makes you, that brings you joy and that you're good at. As, as just be honest. Just be honest with the rest of us. Just, just be okay. Just be honest and say, I'm a finite player. I'm really good at the finite game. I like to win. I play to win. And all I care about is the financial year. And that's what you're going to get. I have no beef with that. But I have the right to know that that's how you're going to play the game if you want me to come work at your company. Because I got to know what I'm stepping into. Don't lie to me and tell me we care about vision. And we care about purpose. <laughs> and we care about why our company does all these things. And we care about corporate fiscal responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Don't write that shit on your website. When all you actually care about is the financial year, appeasing your shareholder, I got no beef with it. Just be honest with me, right? Don't tell me I'm coming in to work for a company with purpose. When I get there, I discover you only care about the financial year. So, so what I'm proposing is relief for all of those, all of us who are working in those finite companies who feel it doesn't work for us that there is an alternative. I'm not saying everybody needs to embrace the alternative. I'm simply saying that that model is good for some, but not good for all. Just like what I am proposing is good for some, but not for all. I have no beef with the gamblers. Just be honest and tell me you're gambling. Don't tell me you're trying to advance some higher purpose or higher cause. You're not. You're taking bets. I'm good with that. So again, I'm an idealist who struggles to live in a world of reality where people tell me I'm stupid and naive. And you know what? I like being naive. And I like being stupid. Because you know what stupid people do? I ask questions because I don't know everything. And I'm on a journey and I'm exploring. Thank God I'm stupid. I, I've never minded being the stupid one in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a meeting. I'll tell you a quick funny story. 
years and years and years ago before Start With Why, when I had my little marketing consultancy, I had this uh, client and they invited me they invited me to some meeting and, and they had hired a, a management consultant to do some work for them. And so the management consultant was going to present their report to all of the C-level executives. I have no clue why, but they let me come sit in the meeting. So I went. So all of these CFOs, COOs, CIOs, CTO, you know, all of them, they're all in the room. I'm the only person in the room who doesn't have an MBA, right? And the uh, management consultant is going through her uh, presentation and everybody's nodding, and I've got the PowerPoint printed out on paper in front of me like we all do, and I'm trying to follow along, and it doesn't make sense to me, and I'm really struggling, and I'm, I'm stupid, right? And I, I'm like, I don't understand this, you know? So I raise my hand and say, I, I, I'm terribly sorry to interrupt. I know I'm the only person in here who doesn't have an MBA, but can you explain this to me in different words? Because you said A plus B equals C, but According to what it looks like, A plus B equals D. Just tell me differently. I, it, I know it's me. I know it's me. Just tell me differently so I can understand. And she attempted to explain it in a different way. And I said, I, it still doesn't make sense to me. I'm so sorry. And within about a minute, Everybody every single in the room in. said, I don't understand either. <laughs> oh, because had the idiot not spoken up, wow. had I not spoken up, everybody yeah. would have nodded. Everybody would have, for fear of appearing that they don't know. Oh, man. And... And then it would have sat on a shelf. They would have wasted their money. And this poor consultant was a waste of their time because I'm sure it's really good work. Either there was a flaw in the work or there's a flaw in the presentation. You know, it's not, it can only be one of those things, right? So if it's a flaw in the work, go back and fix that. And if it's a flaw in the presentation, represent it. Like both are fixable. But one by one, every single one of them didn't understand, right? It's like, it's the fool who speaks to the king, you know? It's, yeah, it's the, the jester. Yeah, right. And so... I've always believed in being respectful. I've never believed in, I've always believed that it's like putting the onus on myself instead of saying, your report is stupid. I'm the stupid one. I'm the idiot. And people, <laughs> yeah. people think I'm joking when I keep referring to myself as the idiot. I'm the idiot. I, I don't think you're the idiot. <laughs> I have some things figured out. I got a couple things that I have some, some theories. I got theories. Right? I got a couple ideas and a couple theories for some things, but there is so much more I don't know and I don't understand. This is my journey. I, I, I scoff at anybody who calls himself an expert in something, expert in leadership. Really? Like it's okay for us for, to refer to other people like that. You're an expert journalist. You're an expert interviewer. You're, you're, you're an expert at building places in which we want to just open up. Right? It's okay for me to call you that, right? Because I'm comparing you to me. <laughs> Right? <laughs> and to me, you're an expert, right? But for some people to call themselves an expert, I'm an expert in, it presupposes that they've, that they've got nothing more to learn. I like to show up like a student. I'm a student of leadership. I am not an expert in leadership. To me, the funniest one is when, when people refer to themselves in their own bios as gurus, you know, social media guru. I'm like, first of all, first of all, I'm fairly confident that one of the criterion, one of the criteria for being a guru is you don't call yourself a guru. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's like high on the list of enlightenment. I would agree. Right? So you can't say in your own bio or your own Twitter or Instagram profile, you know, description, blah, 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 yeah. guru. Yoda would have never right? called himself no, a guru. No, Yoda that's doesn't right. call, we get to call Yoda a guru. Right. Yoda doesn't get to call himself a guru, right? That's number one. And number two, 
I'm pretty sure it takes a long time, like almost a lifetime <laughs> to become guru, right? There's got to be- Yeah, you got to have some gray hairs. That's right. You can't be 22 years old and a guru. That's right. You can be a really advanced student. Others will even say you're an expert. You don't get to call yourself a guru. <laughs> that, that's funny to me. And that's a very modern thing. Everybody, you know, so many people are presenting themselves as gurus. Like I said, it's okay if we, if we call it, if, other, if somebody else calls you guru, that's a sign of respect, right? To call you an expert, to call you a guru, that's, that's respectful, right? I think, you have, I think of you as an expert. I have never a called myself a guru. Of course you haven't. <laughs> of course you haven't. <laughs> I got to say, thank you. I... I'm so relaxed right now about where I'm going because I have no idea where I'm going and it's okay. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Because when I woke up this morning, I didn't feel that relaxed. Now I do. And I cannot wait to read this book because maybe... I have been practicing the infinite game for a long time, wasn't aware of it. Probably. You, you, you're an infinite-minded guy playing in the finite game, beating yourself up because you're not as good as the finite game as all the other finite players. Bingo. Yeah. This book's going to liberate me further. I hope so. Thank you. You're welcome. Really, really well done. <laughs> Thank you. So here's, the, here's there's one little rub, though. There's always a rub. There's, always, okay. there's a little rub, right? Which is in this moment, you and I talking together has released you from that stress and shown you a new way. But the problem is the daily machinations of life, the daily grind, the daily stresses, we slide back into the finite game. We can't help it. And so what you need to do is something, it doesn't matter what, to remind yourself of why you do what you do. Right? You, need, you need some symbolism. You need something around you. It can be anything. It can be anything. Maybe it's this book. Maybe it's this genius of place about, about Olmsted. Maybe what you need to do is that this book needs to be sitting on your bedside table at all times. Maybe this book needs to be on your desk at all times. That's, like, that's where it's been for it, the, ever since okay, I got so, it. So the, right in front of me, I look there at you this go. guy's so, face. So you need, you need a symbol. To remind you, it's like it's like uh, religious artifacts. Sometimes people, we, or like you wear a wedding ring, right? The right. wedding ring is a, is a symbol. It's a symbol of a devotion to another human being. It's a symbol of connection. It's a symbol of 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 commitment, right? It's like in in in, in high school, you know, you give somebody your letter jacket, oh, your remember, varsity yeah. jacket, right? It's a, these are symbols. Symbols are important because they remind us. And so the reason this has to take on new meaning. It's not just a book you like where when you start to feel like you're falling back into that finite mindset, when you start to feel the stress that you're not as good at that finite game as all those other people around you, and they keep telling you that you're stupid and you don't understand and you're naive, you take one look at this book and you'd be like, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm on the right path. Do you know what the scary thing about that? I'm going, I, I've been doing it and I'm going to do it. The scary thing about it is he ended up in a mental institution you're not and, Olmsted. It's just, it's just a metaphor, <laughs> right? It's, he, this is not your life. It's his life. 
You just relaxed me again, Simon. <laughs> it's just a symbol, a metaphor. <laughs> Holy cow, man. You're not going to go to a mental institution like Olmsted. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you have really done something for me that it, it's almost like you, you go to a, a masseuse who you lay down on the table and then you come out like an hour, an hour and a half later and everything, all the knots are out. Yeah. Is, is this just me or do it's you- high praise, thank you very much. Well, thank you because the knots are gone. Good, good. And may you pay it forwards. I, I guarantee you I will. Yeah. And I wanted to get you a Sportique hoodie, but- <laughs> That's okay. I know you're going to have to throw something out yeah. if you take that in. So I don't don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Thank you. Because you have just made me feel so comfortable. Good, good. We'll keep you comfortable. Such a joy, Cal. Such a joy. Thank you so much. A real Cal. pleasure. All right. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for getting me to start this podcast. Keeps taking me to new places. People hear it ask me to come in and speak. Then, after I do, we're talking about me helping these companies get across their stories. This never would have happened without Tim's push. And if not for Tim, I don't know if I would have met my friends at Sportique and WeWork. For the softest hoodies, t-shirts, and sweatpants, go to Sportique.com and use the offer code CAL for 20% off. You're going to find out why Kevin... The manager sleeps in his Sportique sweatpants. And for office space, use the offer code www.we.co slash cal for 20% off at WeWork. They say it's where company meets community, but it feels like home to me. If you get office space there, maybe I'll bump into you. And remember to send photos to calfussman.com of where you listen to big questions always makes my day. And one day, I may show up there with a sporty hoodie for you. Until then, cheers! Cheers!